0: Church, it is good to be with you. Please behold God's living word by turning to Colossians chapter 1. In an age where it's hard to get 280 characters eligible to post a Twitter feed, perhaps a letter is out of date for some of you. I'm grateful for the older saints in the congregation who still write letters. There's something intentional about it. There's something caring about it. I remember when my, before my grandmother passed away, she gave me a letter of all the things that she was praying for me. All the ways that she was asking God to strengthen my family and my ministry specific verses that she was praying for me. Though she's with Christ now, I still have that letter. There's a certain care that a letter provides. I thought appropriate as my first act of corporate ministry as your senior pastor to open up one of Paul's glorious letters with you. As Paul cared deeply for the church at Colossae, When Moises and I were discussing the first book to preach through together with First Irving, the Lord separately positioned Colossians in both of our hearts. Paul's letter to the Colossians is perhaps the most densely Christ-centered book in all the scriptures, save for maybe the book of Hebrews. With King Jesus as the focus of the letter, I couldn't think of a more appropriate book to begin my era of ministry with you. I do hope that the supremacy of Christ, the glory of Christ defines my preaching ministry to you, our as your pastors and elders preaching ministry to you as well as our pastoral ministry to you over the years to come, God willing. It's my hope your pastor, that our faith would increase and be found in Christ more and more, that we would be seized uh, in our affections for him more and more, and that our hope would be renewed by Christ week in and week out until he comes for his glorious church. And so that is why we have selected the book of Colossians. It is going to be a 16-week study in this book. We're going to scrub it. Uh, If I could just lay out my philosophy of preaching, Uh, it's called expositional preaching. And what that means is we want to expose what God's Word says, I don't want to come up here and say my own words. We want to make sure that we can say what God's Word has said about Himself, which is simply the work of exercising God's divine power through His Word in preaching. We want you to hear God's Word. We want you to know God. We want you to believe what it says about God and what the Word says about you. The Word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Have you ever thought about how sharp a two-edged sword is? The type of carnal damage it does when thrust. Well, this word right here is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to separate bone with marrow, soul and spirit It opens us up and it plants seeds of truth in us and it waters us week in and week out and it grows within us an understanding of who God is and an understanding of how desperately we need him every second of every day. Thus the preaching of the word ought to be the center of life for the church. This is our philosophy of preaching here at First Serving. Not only do we believe in the inerrancy of God's word, it's without error. The infallibility of God's word and that it's able to guard us from error. We believe that the word is inspired by God given to us by him according to his own word. But we also believe in the sufficiency of God's word in that the word of God alone is able to nurture us and sustain us We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that each of us would be complete, equipped for every good work. That is what the word says about itself. And I want you to know, church family, beloved, that I take preaching very seriously. One, because I fear God and the responsibility I have before you and before him. But I also want you to know that I genuinely love you. And I want you to know the God of the scriptures and I want to know the God of the scriptures with you. As we enter into the book of Colossians, one theologian said of the book, to express it in a phrase is to distinguish the true Christ from a fictitious one. I hope as we march through this book over the next 16 weeks that we can agree on who Christ is according to the word. Now, I have already been reminded even in just being here a short week that we are not going to agree on how to pronounce the street name Grawweiler or (laughs) Garwheeler. We're just not. Everybody says it differently, the thoroughfare that runs east to west in our bird, But I do hope as we work through this word, that we agree on who Christ is in all of his glory. If you've been a saint for any period of time, perhaps you know the great hymn, Jesus paid it all. I can still hear my grandfather singing it in the, in the, in the shadows of my memory. It's a beautiful hymn that this book right here will speak to as we get into it. Jesus did in fact pay it all and the book of Colossians will show us that. But the book of Colossians actually takes it a step further and shows the church how not only did Jesus pay it all, but he in fact is all and in all. And so we have titled the series, Christ is All. And as we unpack this letter, we'll figure out more and more, week by week, what that actually means. But this first sermon is written to a letter of Christians who are in Christ, just as we are. And so it's appropriate for us to just start with the greeting of this letter. Now, before I get into the greeting of the letter, I do want us to give some background to Colossae, given that it's a new series. Colossae was a smaller, somewhat insignificant city known only for its bustling wool industry in the 4th century. How about that? It's what it's known for throughout throughout history. It's 100 miles away from Ephesus, and it's 11 miles away from Laodicea, which actually was a more significant church in the Lycus Valley. Now, Colossae was uh, located in modern-day Turkey as a, as, a Roman, uh, as a Roman province. It was set up like a Roman colony. This little church is perhaps the least significant church written to in the New Testament, not insignificant in the fact that uh, it, it was made in Christ, it's significant in that way, but it's insignificant in the way it had influence in the region. It was just a very small church. The church at Colossae is linked to the Apostle Paul's ministry, which we see in Acts chapter 19. If you have time later this afternoon, I would read Acts chapter 19 and get a little bit more background as to what's going on there. But as Paul is ministering in that city, he is having a church planting ministry that's going on. He shares the gospel with a man named Epaphras, who we're going to talk about a little bit more next week. But Epaphras takes the gospel and Epaphras plants three churches in the Lycus Valley. He, he plants Hierapolis, Laodicea, and this church in Colossae. Now, as the time this letter is written, which is probably the early 60s of the first century... Epaphras goes to Paul who is in more than likely a Roman prison and he gives him an update of what's going on in the Lycus Valley in total, but specifically what's going on in the church at Colossae. He tells Paul that the church is actually under siege by false teaching And he is wanting him to know this, getting certainly advice from Paul on what to do, but he is wanting Paul to respond to what's going on. Now, we're gonna get into the type of false teaching that's going on in the Lycus Valley the deeper we get into this letter, specifically chapter two. But for now, it's good for us to know this. They were undermining the sufficiency of Christ. They were doubting that Christ was enough for salvation. They were doubting that Christ was enough for Christian living. And so they were adding to doctrines that had been given. And in the most glorious response from the Apostle Paul, he writes the letter to the Colossians. And he instructs them on the preeminence of the King of Glory. And he shares with him how he's not only our savior, but he's actually creator of the cosmic realm. He's the head of the church and he is sufficient for daily living. So Paul's response to this false teaching is this letter that we have here today. Today, we'll be looking at only the first two verses of this letter. This greeting is typical in the ancient world. It's not too different from the other epistles that we have. I don't ever want us to pass too quickly through a greeting because it has treasure troves of truth embedded in it, as well as clues to the contents of the letter, which this greeting, in fact, does have for us today. From this greeting, there's three parts that I wanna look at with you. First, we're going to notice the servants of Christ, those who wrote the letter, why they wrote the letter, and why them writing the letter is significant. Secondly, we're going to discuss a people in Christ who received this letter. How are they identified, and what do we know about them historically? And thirdly, we'll notice the blessings through Christ that those who have received Christ have. Which means this, we'll, we'll share why the letter was written in the first place and what kind of applications it has for a church almost 2,000 years later. So the first thing I want us to notice is the servants of Christ. Look with me in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother... Now, Paul is the author of this letter as he identifies himself right here. We see confirmation of it here in the greeting. He talks about himself, about the ministry he's received in Colossians 1.23, and then he identifies himself in the very last verse of the fourth chapter as the one who wrote it with his own hand. Now, over the past 150 years, people have tried to dispute that this is a Pauline epistle, but there is no valid contention for that. We see within the depths of the letter this understanding of Christ that fits his understanding of Christ in other letters. His understanding of the church and how wisdom of Christ affects our daily life and how it gives us hope for the glory of the kingdom that is to come. If anything, we see a further development of something called Christology. So ology is the study of something and the topic of study here is Christ. So he develops a Christology or a teaching of Christ unlike the church had seen to this point. But we have confidence that it was Paul who wrote this letter because it is deeply orthodoxical, meaning that it is sound in its teaching. It's faithful, and it's connected to other letters that he wrote. So we can, with confidence, trust that Paul wrote this letter. Why is Paul's authorship important? We'll see with me, again, in verse 1, what he says. He mentions immediately that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, an apostle can simply mean a messenger or a sent one, As Paul refers to himself as a sent one throughout many of the epistles. However, here Paul is using the term to highlight a specific position that he holds within the kingdom of God and God's plan for the churches. As one who has been called and directly sent by the resurrected Lord himself, Paul has responsibility to the church. He wants to care for the church. He's not defending his apostleship like he does in other letters. He does that to the Corinthians. He does that to the Galatians. He is simply sharing that he is an apostle. So therefore his teaching of an apostle holds weight to the teaching of the false teachers that this church is hearing about. It's countering the false teachers teaching. And it has some, some gusto to it since he's an apostle. He wants them, he's not telling them that he's an apostle in some prideful, ungodly way. He's reminding them of his apostleship, his authority in the church from God as he ministers and cares for this church and as a very quick application for us today, church. We would do well always to listen and to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching just as the early church did. Anytime an apostle writes a letter, we listen because we know that they are sent and ordained and given authority by God to serve and care for the church. Apostles had authority to teach the congregation. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter two, to shepherd the congregation. We see this in 2 Corinthians 13. So when an apostle speaks, church, we are to listen so by God's grace, he is writing to the church to defend the truths about Christ as this church is under siege by false teaching. Where does this authority come from? Well, he tells us from God himself. It is from the will of God that Paul has been made an apostle. He belongs to Christ. There is a very clear and divine purpose displayed in Paul's life that is directly linked to the local church. Paul was expressing God's will for this church through his instruction. That means this, if it was God's will for Paul to be an apostle, it was therefore God's will for the church to be ministered to and to be reminded of the truth. So he was set aside for the church and for the glory Amen of God's name. Now, if you've been in the church, you remember that Paul was a Jesus hater before he was an apostle. And if you're not a part of the church, I want you to know that Paul was a Jesus hater and not a part of the church. He was given authority to destroy the church. He was actually doing that on his way to Damascus when he encountered the resurrected Lord. And from there, he had his life dramatically changed. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He already knew who he was. And from there, his life dramatically changed. He was served by Christ in the most unexpected way and then commissioned by Christ to care for his church. Paul was an instrument of God chosen by him to minister, to teach, to serve the church. And not just the local church 2,000 years ago, but the church historically, the church globally, and the church presently as we gather here today. Now, a couple of things that are important for us to consider. When we think about the calling that's on the Apostle Paul's life, It's the sovereign grace of God here that is mentioned in Paul's life. He is an apostle by the will of God, and he's stating this. It's God's will to save Paul, it's God's will to set Paul apart, and it's God's will to commission Paul to serve the churches. Now, friends, not many in history were saved to be apostles. In fact, All apostles ceased when the very last apostle died. There are no longer apostles that exist amongst us today. I am certainly not an apostle and nor is anybody else in all of creation now. But the apostles' words still live today because they are divinely inspired by the will of God. The church has been established and pastors And elders and deacons have been nurturing her for the last 2,000 years. Now, we aren't gonna be called to be apostles like Paul, but all of us have been saved. And all of us have actually been dramatically saved just as Paul was. Now, I'm not saying we were dramatically saved in that we were on the road to Damascus and we saw the risen Lord. However, we have Come in contact with the risen Lord in our own hearts as he has revealed to himself, if you are a Christian, who he is, his holiness, his righteousness. If you've encountered the risen Lord in your heart, you recognize that you are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. He has saved you and he has set you apart and he has callings for all of us as well. And this is kind of a teaser application because we're going to get into this more in chapter three as we get into the book. But as Paul's calling was unique as an apostle of, of God, by the will of God, we're called to serve the church as well. We're called to serve as well. We're saved by God. We're called to serve his church. We're called to proclaim his name amongst the nations. A common question that you might be asking yourself and that you probably have asked yourself throughout time is, what is the will of God? How do I know the will of God in my own life? Well, as I said, we're going to get into that more as this letter continues. But very quickly, we want to make sure that we know that the will of God has already been revealed. It's revealed through his word. And as God sets Paul aside to minister to his church, he reveals his will through every single line in the scriptures for us. We're constantly thinking, well, what am I supposed to do next? Am I supposed to make this decision? Or am I supposed to make that decision? And I would say, Christians, so oftentimes we are so focused on God's plan for us that we miss the person who orchestrates the plan. And we are to be set under his authority to recognize that he is providentially moving us in this life, just as he, Paul did not know in his life that he would be the leader of the church as he was the leader against the church. In a moment's time, it all changed. He didn't have any control over it and oftentimes we don't either. What we want to do is make sure that we don't miss the person who over, oversees the plans. If you're a younger Christian, or how about this, a young-ish Christian, go, go sit at, at the breakfast table with an older saint, someone who has been walking with God for a long time, and just ask them how providential God has moved them throughout this life and how he has sustained them and kept them and how all the things they used to worry about, they aren't worried about any longer. They've learned to trust that God is God. Now we also see here in the text that Timothy is mentioned as well, albeit briefly. Given what we've already discussed about Paul, more than likely Timothy is not necessarily a co-author of the letter, though I'm It is very possible that some of his ideas are inked in the pages of scripture. It's possible that he served as a scribe for Paul. He was with Paul in prison, three out of the four prison letters, Philemon, Philippians, and Colossians. So he certainly could have been a secretary or a scribe of some sorts. But what we do know is that Paul is the one who's orchestrating it as an apostle. But Timothy, his brother, is mentioned here and he calls him Brother, which is interesting because he calls him a son in the faith elsewhere in Scripture, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But he's using different familial language here. It shows the apostle's humility to to include his younger counterpart in the faith, his apprentice in the faith. It's as if they're saying, hey, we, brothers in the faith, care for you, church at Colossae. It shows a great deal of humility But who are they writing to? Who is receiving this letter today? Well, the second thing I want us to look at is this. It's a people in Christ. To the saints, verse two, to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae, or in Christ at Colossae. Notice that Paul locates the recipients of this letter both geographically, and then he locates them theologically. They are in Christ and he identifies them as saints and faithful brothers. That familial language again, so brother Timothy and brothers and sisters who are in the faith. Now the original language actually says this, to the the saints and faithful brothers who are in Christ in Colossae. He's identifying him as such. First he identifies them as saints, which means simply this, different. At its very core, saints means different. Set apart, completely other. Or said another way, like the Lord. They were a different people than the rest of the people in society. And this means something. Paul is picking up the language or the theology of the Old Testament that we get from Exodus chapter 19, that God called the people from out of the nations, and he made a people of his own possession, and he gave the prophets, and he gave the laws, and he gave the kings to these people. God has always set his people apart. He has always had holy ones. They're not holy because they've reached some level of spiritual maturity. They're holy because God has set them apart by his own work, by his own will. He also describes them as faithful. Holy is a common phrase that Paul uses throughout the New Testament, but faithful isn't. He only uses it one other place in Ephesians chapter one. We don't know exactly how he's using this phrase He could be saying that they're being faithful amidst the difficult persecution that they're under or the false teaching that they're under. He could simply be saying that they're faithful because at some point they've trusted in Christ and they're continuing to trust in Christ. Either way, he calls them faithful. And either way, he calls them brothers and sisters. It was common in ancient times with different associations to refer to one another as brothers. This is is like to intimately stress like the fraternal relationship that people have with one another. You're either in or you're out, whatever, whatever association one is referring to. Perhaps you're in a fraternity or sorority today in college, or you were way back when, or you're a part of Rotary Club in this city, and you've had big brothers and big sisters, and you refer to one another as a brotherhood or a sisterhood. It's the same kind of idea here. The New Testament, comes alongside the language of the day and uses brothers and sisters to identify themselves as the ones who are holy, the ones who are faithful, the ones who belong to a local church. Now we do see in Isaiah 52 that the word of God says that he's going to be a father and he's gonna have sons and daughters. So we know that ultimately this language is from our God. But regardless, they are brothers and sisters. And it's interesting because we still refer to each other as brothers and sisters today, do we not? Brother, it's good to see you. Sister, it's good to see you. How often do we use that without ever really thinking about what it means? We say it so often that we perhaps miss the significance behind it. The brothers and sisters, but... Even more, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. How is this possible? How are they holy? Because they are in Christ. Being in Christ means that they belong to Christ. Your redemption, which Christ's death and resurrection inaugurated, allowed you to come in to Christ. That means this, you are no longer in Adam, as Roman 5 tells us, but now you are in Christ. So these faithful and brothers are identified in Christ. Remember what Romans 5 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. But with Christ who took your death in your stead, you are now forgiven and you're brought into his family. You are no longer in the family of Adam, but you are now in the family of Christ. Church, you have a new location. It is not with Adam. Remember what it says in Psalm 51, that uh, we are conceived in iniquity. It's just passed from one generation to another. That's why you see your little child is like one. It's like, give me what I want. And if you don't, I'm gonna cry. You just see it in you. But in Christ, We have a new head, a new Lord, and we're in him. Somewhere before this letter was written through the ministry of Epaphras, the gospel went forward and this church heard the good news of the gospel of Christ and they were moved from darkness to light. They were moved from Adam to the better Adam, to the second Adam, to to, to God the son who is the perfect Adam. And so this is where he's saying, this is your location. You might be in Colossae, but you are more importantly in Christ. We might be in Irving, but far more importantly, we are in Christ, brothers and sisters. Years back, I had the joy of walking with a family, our family did, who was adopting Uh, uh, these two brothers from a broken home, a a really sad situation. And we were able to pray with them and walk through some of that journey with them. They were moved from one location to another. They were given new heads of households as they were moved to that location. They entered a new culture because it's a new family with new values. And that that, that family's value was to honor and glorify God in everything that they did. Now, it's still sad that they were not able to be with their original family. There's brokenness and sadness in that. But they were moved to a a family that loves and fears God's and they're able to hear the gospel every single day. Brothers and sisters, these people might have lived in Colossae, but far more importantly, they reside in the domain of Christ. The entire life of the believer is encased by Jesus. And this book is going to show that it's not only the the high arching theology of his glory in all of these places, but it's going to talk about how that affects every single relationship in our life and every decision that we make as we get further into this letter. This letter will help show us that not only is salvation in Christ, but everything we do is in Christ. Our life is in Christ. Christ's death becomes our death. His burial, our burial. His resurrection, our resurrection. His victory is our victory. We are wedded together, knit together, and we cannot be separated from the love of God. Listen to Romans 8 with me. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. Now listen to me, please. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who belong to Christ because they're in Christ But brothers and sisters, even more intimately, we have brothers and sisters who belong to Christ in this community known as the local church, known as First Irving. We are, if if you would allow me to say, immediate family. Brothers and sisters, I love my cousins, my second cousins. I love getting to spend time with them. We tell stories of old, but there's nothing like sitting down with my brothers and my sisters and talking about what it was like to grow up in the same household together. Well, this is our location, Irving, Texas. And we, if you have proclaimed Christ as king and trusted in Christ as king, now we're brought into the same family together known as First Irving. I know that we have families. And guys, I know that we would do anything for those families. I would do anything for those that I have blood relationships with. And hopefully those in our families are also in Christ as well. But the family of God supersedes bloodlines because we're in Christ. It's sealed with blood, the blood of the lamb, the second Adam, the better Adam. And those who are in the family, we get to dwell together, we get to live together. We ought to be more familial than any family in the neighborhood the neighborhood around us ought to look at us and say they love each other. The older saints love the younger saints. The younger saints honor and love the older saints and they dwell together because they are a part of something that I can't quite put my finger on. That's our location. We are in Christ and therefore that affects being in Irving. This is why we put such a deal on church membership. We wanna make sure that we agree on what the scriptures say about this Jesus that we're preaching, about this Jesus that we're singing to and singing about. Now, family members receive blessings through Christ and that's the third point I want us to see today, very quickly in closing. Second part of verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Each letter written by Paul carries just general themes in the greeting. One, who writes the letter, who receives the letter, and then sort of like a purpose statement about the letter. Well, verse two, B, is the purpose statement of the letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Instead of using the traditional Greek greeting, which is actually the word greeting, Paul substitutes it with the word grace. And he says, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. So grace is to you, is to the church, and then he tags that Jewish word for peace, shalom, with it, saying it's from God the Father. Paul's not simply saying some subjective words in his greeting like, hey, grace and peace, church, from me. No, he's actually, this means something right here. He's saying grace and peace, and they're from God the Father. There's weight behind what he is saying. This is the purpose statement. He wants them to know that grace is given to them. Remember, church family, that you have grace that has been given to you. Remember, church family, those who are in Christ, there is now peace in your own heart and in your own life because of what has been given to you in Christ. Listen to Romans 3.23. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. So grace comes from Christ. And because we have been justified before, by grace through faith, we have peace with God through Christ. This is Romans 5.1, and it's actually the end of Colossians 1 as well. Which simply means this, we were at war with God. And because Christ stepped in and served as a mediator and took our punishment for us, There is now peace before the throne of grace, before the throne of God. There is no longer any war. So there's grace to you, church, through Christ, and there's peace to you, church, by Christ, and this is from the Father. This is from the Father. Grace and peace from God are irrevocable. No matter the attacks from the false teachers, Paul is reminding them of their security in Christ. And he's reminding them of the gospel themselves. It's as if he's writing to you, hey, I write to you this letter to remind you of what you have in Christ. to, To write you, to remind you of the gospel that you have believed in. And then over the next 15 weeks, we're gonna talk about all the ways that God reminds him of these truths. Grace is at the center theme of this letter because Christ is at the center theme of this letter. I've never done a handheld before during a sermon, so here we go. It is the grace that we will discuss in this letter that has saved us. It is the grace in this letter, that's in Christ, that sustains us and that sanctifies us us he starts with grace at the beginning of the letter and he ends with grace grace be with you church in fact I would submit Colossians 2 6 and 7 is the premise of the letter and he says this therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were once taught abounding in thanksgiving Christ is the center theme of this letter. And if grace and peace feel like old terms to you, the responsibility that we have is to be reminded of anew of the glory and the grace of God through Christ each and every single week. That should resonate with us in new and helpful and healthy ways in our life. Now a word to you, church family, congregation, brothers and sisters. Perhaps you need to be reminded today of grace that has been given to you in Christ. That you don't have to strive any longer for anything. It's been done to you by the will of God in Jesus. The gospel has been made known to you. The wrath of God has been satisfied in Christ. And we are to remind each other of that all the times in which we are to gather. Perhaps, church family, you need to be reminded of what it is to be a family. When's the last time you talked to someone you didn't know, or served someone that wasn't like you, or wasn't born around your birth date? We have an amazing privilege to dwell with one another in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter our age, brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, I hope over the the years to come that the city of Irving would know us as a congregation that loves one another as Christ has loved us. Laying down our lives for one another, not taking ourselves too seriously and considering the needs that our brothers and sisters have. A word to the non-Christian. We're glad that you're here today. Right now as you sit, this letter is actually not for you. It's for those who are in Christ. I, I would say that I, I desperately desire, and we would desperately desire for this letter to be written to you as well. What does it mean to be in Christ, you might be asking yourself? What, is it, what does it mean to have grace and peace from Christ? And that can be a longer conversation that we would love To have with you. Colossians 1 excuse me, Colossians 2 says this that we enter into Christ by receiving him by faith. So we are to put our faith in Christ. Uh, The scriptures say that every single person is guilty of sin. And that every single person guilty of sin deserves death. It says in Romans that the penalty or the payment of sin is death. So death must occur for the life of a person because of sin. But for those who are in Christ, they're the ones who have trusted in the one who died for them, who took on that death for them. He was righteous and he took sin on himself himself and paid the penalty on our behalf. We didn't do anything except for trust in him. And even the faith that was given to us was faith that was given to us from above. We recognize that we can't save ourselves. The sin keeps us from being able to do that. But we trust the one who saved us. If that is you, and you don't really know what I'm talking about today, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Come and talk to a pastor here in just a moment. Let us walk you through it, even if it's more than one conversation. Talk to the person that brought you. We want you to know this Christ and what it is to be in him so that you too can be in the family that is found in Christ and Christ alone. Christian, as we close today, there's a couple ways that you can respond. How have you not trusted in Christ? Where are you relying upon yourself? I would ask as we close out here in just a moment that we would think upon these things, that we would reflect in our own heart. What do we believe about the one who God has sent by his own will to care for his church? We're going to pray and then we're going to respond. There's going to be a few pastors down here. If anybody wants to pray or talk, we'll be here to minister and be here for you. Let's the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we recognize that, Father, the fraternities we can be a part of, the groups we can be a part of, pale in comparison to what it is to be a part of the church founded in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, would you help us understand that more and more? Would you help us to to recognize that Jesus is the head of our family? And because he has served us, Father, now we can serve one another and love one another, care for one another. Father, I pray for those who may not know Christ today pray that you would open up their hearts and their minds to trust your son. God, help us, the church, to love and care for them and to minister to them, just as Epaphras ministered to the church at Colossae. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.